Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, it's great to be here at the University of Tulsa. I am not only excited because I've never been to the University of Tulsa, but tomorrow I get to go to the Bob Dylan Center. Uh, and I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, so I am lo- I'm looking forward to, uh, to just taking it in. But thank you for coming this evening. Uh, the title of, uh, of the talk, as Jason said, is There Anything Wrong with Moral Relativism? What I'm going to do is make a, a critical, offer you a kind of critical analysis of moral relativism. First, what I want to do, though, is you should all, by the way, have a copy of, of notes. So I want to begin with two sets of claims. The one is what I, uh, just some moral rules, that is some rules about morality that most of us, if not all of us, are aware of. The second are some immoral rules. Um, in, a, in an article that I published about a year ago, I called it the ten, I have a different set of them, I called them the 10 bogus rules. So the, the, the moral rules, love your neighbor as yourself, thou shalt not commit adultery, do not intentionally kill the innocent, do not take what is not yours without permission. Parents ought to care for their infant children. Shun ignorance and try to live at peace with your neighbors. It is impermissible for a city or state to pass post facto laws. One ought not to rape anyone. Some immoral rules. Your guilt or innocence in a criminal trial depends entirely on your race and not on a judge or jury's deliberation on legitimately obtained evidence. Anyone may be convicted of a crime based on the results of a coin toss. The maximum punishment for first-degree murder is an all-expense-paid vacation to Las Vegas. Government contracts are to be distributed based on family connections and bribes and not on the quality of the bids. It's more of a concealed Las Vegas connection. Original parenthood is to be decided by a special board of experts appointed by the governor and not on whether one sires or begets the child. Now, if you believe that these moral rules or or immoral rules, and perhaps others not mentioned, ought to be obeyed or disobeyed by everyone, regardless of time, place, circumstance, or culture, then you are not a moral relativist. You are a moral objectivist. That's a different 
Terms are used, uh, sometimes moral objectivist, moral, some form of moral realism, uh, moral absolutist, but you believe that there's something real about morality and that, it's, and that you can know it. Uh, you believe that morality in one way or another can be known by everyone, that morality is, is more like mathematics than it is the, the rules of etiquette. On the other hand, if you believe that morality depends exclusively on one's time, place, or culture, that there is no universal objective morality that transcends society and circumstance, then you're a moral relativist. That is, you don't believe that there's anything objective or true about morality. It is simply, it's more like the rules of etiquette than mathematics. You don't, you don't deny, if you're a relativist, you don't deny that there are moral rules. But what you believe is that these rules are nothing more than one society's code, uh, which may be different, but no better or no worse than the ethical code of another society. So again, you believe it's more like the rules of etiquette than the rules of mathematics. Now, the Thomistic Institute, for which I am speaking this evening, uh, is a Catholic uh, institution, and it, uh, it, the church, the Catholic Church, holds that a person who believes uh, uh, in moral relativism may, in fact, hesitate to entertain religious beliefs, including Catholicism. Why? Because belief in objective absolute morality tends to be tightly tethered to religious traditions. So for this reason, in what follows in my comments, we'll take a, a careful look at some of the reasons why people believe in moral relativism and how uh, a Catholic or even just a general religious person who may not be Catholic may want to uh, respond to or how that individual may, may want to respond to the moral relativists. Now, the question is, why are people moral relativists? And I want to go over two kinds of objections, or two, two kinds of arguments or reasons why people are moral relativists. Uh, they usually go into two general categories. One, there's just too much diversity of moral issues, both in and across culture. And the second, more of a practical or pragmatic argument, and it's that it's intolerant to believe that one's moral view is universally true and others wrong. So I'm going to call the first the argument from disagreement and the second the argument from tolerance. Both arguments, I think, are reasons why it makes sense for certain people to believe that relativism is correct. So I want to give the relativist his or her due, <laughs> that it's not a completely crazy position to hold. I think that it, in one sense it makes sense, but I, what I want to do is offer criticisms of these two kinds of arguments uh, that I think show that it's, I think, a lot weaker than people think. So I think superficially, I think it, it, it does have a kind of power to it. 
So the, let's go over the first one, the argument from disagreement. So everywhere you look, disagreement on moral issues is everywhere. In the United States alone, there are an array of questions over which sincere citizens hold contrary views. We can almost recite them by heart. Abortion, marriage, the role of like critical race theory in public education, physician-assisted suicide, religious liberty, animal rights. You know, there are lots of other issues, but those are some of the ones that we probably are just the most aware of because of debates in contemporary culture. Internationally, it's no different. While some cultures practice polygamy and prohibit the killing and eating of cattle, to cite but just two examples, other cultures practice monogamy and open up steak joints in Tulsa. Think of all the civilizations, so not only in terms of contemporary culture, but across time. Uh, think of all the civilizations throughout history that thought it was perfectly permissible to enslave fellow human beings, torture heretics, or rape and pillage conquered nations. So given the wide diversity of moral opinions and practices across both space and time, it's easy to see why someone would be a moral relativist. Uh, it should not be surprising then that two of the most widely read academic defenses of moral relativism uh, by social scientists Ruth Benedict and William Graham Sumner appeal to this diversity in making their cases. So if any of you have, have taken a introductory course in ethics or moral problems, you probably your professor has probably had you read Ruth Benedict and William Graham Sumner. They're sort of the kind of standard uh, stock essays that are, are usually an introductory ethics textbooks. Or I don't, do we even have textbooks anymore? Uh, I mean, I, I actually, for my students, I try to, try to get, what I do is I look at old textbooks and, and I see where they were, where the, uh, excerpts are originally published, and then I get into our library's holdings and get the PDFs and just kind of reconstruct it, and then I upload it to Canvas, and the students don't have to pay. That's a cool idea. I, I'm sure other professors have thought of that as well. But, but if, uh, uh, if you looked at sort of a standard course in introduction to ethics, virtually every one of them, if, if the section of the course that deals with relativism will have the students read and go over either Sumner or uh, Ruth Benedict. So they essentially argue that because there is wide disagreement on moral beliefs and practices, there is no universal objective morality, and thus moral relativism is true. Now, there is something uh, that is impressive about this argument at first since it appears to be based on an undeniable fact, moral disagreement, I think, though, it's remarkably weak once one begins to actually examine the argument. So I want to go over four problems with the, the argument from disagreement, and then we'll, we'll move on to the argument from tolerance, and then I'm going to say a few things about what Thomas Aquinas can teach us about moral disagreement 
Because after all, this is the Thomistic Institute, and, uh, and we're more than just peeping Thomists. That's, uh, that's funnier than, than <laughs> all right, or doting Thomists. That's maybe better, so. All right. Uh, so first, the first problem with the argument of disagreement is just as a matter of simple logic, the fact of moral disagreement does not entail moral relativism. Just as the fact of disagreement over the shape of the earth does not entail that the earth has no shape. So when I use the term entail, I'm using a kind of technical term that means that the reasons that I'm giving uh, necessarily establish the conclusion. So if I say all bachelors are unmarried, Al Gore is a bachelor, therefore Al Gore is unmarried, that conclusion is entailed by the premises. Right? But when it comes to appealing to disagreement, that doesn't actually necessarily establish the fact that moral relativism is true. Because after all, um, why can't it be the case that some cultures and individuals have gotten morality wrong? <laughs> why can't that be an option? Uh, which is something that we all kind of believe down deep, right? So who, for example, would say that the Nazis, what they did to the Jewish people in Europe was morally permissible because their culture said it was right, or that racial segregation as once practiced in the southern United States was not immoral because the society at the time believed it was okay. So we can think of cases where the mere fact of disagreement would not be enough to sway us, right? So if that's the case, in some cases, well, why can't we just say that about <laughs> the argument from disagreement the relativist offers. It, it, some cultures and societies and individuals get things wrong. Right? It's not a crazy response. Second problem is in order for the argument from disagreement to work, the moral relativist must assume this proposition. Whenever there is disagreement on any issue, there is no universal objective truth on the matter. So now suppose, so, 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 so let's say, so let me repeat that. Uh, there is no universal, whenever there is disagreement on an issue, for example, the correct moral position on X, any, pick any issue you want, there, there is no universal objective truth on the matter. But suppose we responded to that by saying something like this, I disagree with the proposition, whenever there's disagreement on any issue, there's no universal objective truth on the matter. But this means that we can reject the proposition on its own grounds. In other words, the idea that whenever there is disagreement, there is no truth, just announce your disagreement with that, <laughs> and the whole thing unravels. Right? Again, it doesn't prove moral objectivism. I'm not making a case right now that moral objectivism is right. After all, the title is what's wrong with moral, rel it has to do with what's wrong with moral relativism. So all that I'm doing here is showing that the mere fact of disagreement or even the, the, the principle that's being used 
can be challenged on the same grounds that it is employed to reject moral objectivism, and we can reject it as well. It is sometimes, it's, it's a variation on what is called a self-refuting claim. So it's much like the claim made by the person who says, don't believe anything I say, or I can't speak a word in English. Right? So I, uh, years ago, the American Philosophical Association used to sell a shirt that said the statement on the back of this shirt is false, and on the back of the shirt, it said the statement on the front of this shirt is true. I still think you, you, have, you still clean it with cold water. Um, so third problem, disagreement is overrated. So let's, so here I, what I want to do is kind of more carefully examine why people disagree on moral issues. So take, for example, the issue of abortion. Although it's true that pro-lifers and pro-choicers disagree on its morality, they do not disagree on the moral principle that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons. What they disagree on is what counts as a person or how we should understand the meaning of innocence. Defenders of abortion rights typically argue that either that the fetus, though genetically a human being, is not morally a person during most, if not all, of its gestation. So in the literature, when you read, for example, if you've ever taken a, a course on, on contemporary moral problems or a course um, on sort of applied ethics or medical ethics, one of the things that you'll see if you cover the issue of abortion is that uh, thinkers that defend abortion rights will argue that prior to a certain point in fetal development, or even postnatally, the, the, uh, the human being has not achieved what they call moral status. And there's all sorts of criteria that are offered, like uh, the ability to have a self-concept, which means that people probably don't become persons till 20. No. Uh, the ability to have a self-concept, uh, the ability to reason, sentience, the ability to feel, the detection of brain waves, viability. There's all sorts of these criteria that are offered. Why are they offered? They're offered because the person offering the criterion believes that it is, in fact, wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons. And what they're doing is making an argument as to why fetuses, and in some cases newborns, are excluded from the category of innocent persons. So what you find even in a debate as uh, contested as abortion, there is an agreement on the moral principle that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons. Now, I also mentioned the term innocence. So there, is, there are a few philosophers who argue that, who, who concede that the fetus is a person, but nevertheless argue that, it's, that abortion is still justified because it, it, if its presence is not agreed to or consented to, by the pregnant woman, it is a kind of trespassing. That it, it, it's, uh, and there are several analogies that have, very famous analogies that have been used by philosophers uh, to make this case. Uh, one, uh, some of you may have actually studied, uh, offered by the philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson. She argues that, uh, imagine you are abducted by the Society of Music Lovers and they uh, they've canvassed 
all the hospital records and discovered you and only you have the right blood type to help this world-class violinist who just needs to use your kidneys for nine months. They hook you up to some kind of contraption that's connected to the violinist's kidneys and, and you wake up and the doctor tells you um, all you have, look, uh, violinists are persons and all persons have a right to life. If you unplug yourself from the violinist, uh, he will die. All you have to do is to stay hooked up for nine months. And Thompson is saying, well, you have every right to unplug yourself even though the violinist is a person. Now, you may not think that's a good analogy. I, I, I've published things critical of it myself, but here's the point. The, the point is, oh, we'll, we'll take questions at the, no, take questions at the end, okay? Uh, the, uh, you may think it's a, it's a bad analogy. I think that there's flaws in it, but here's the point. The point is that even Thompson recognizes that there is a kind of obligation that we have not to act in ways that, that harm innocent persons. But her argument is there's a sense in which the fetus isn't fully innocent. Right? Again, you may disagree. I disagree with her. But the point here in terms of responding to the relativist is that even on a contested issue like abortion, there's kind of shared moral understandings. So you can apply this kind of reasoning uh, to other issues as well. If you think about the debates or the disagreements today uh, about marriage, uh, physician-assisted suicide, and even religious liberty, the differing factions appeal to the exact same moral goods and principles to justify their positions. Fairness, justice, relief of suffering, love, and protection of the vulnerable. Where they disagree is over the proper application of those goods and principles to which they are being applied. This is why, if you've ever read uh, the Catholic Catechism, there's an entire section, a very large section, on the virtues and the moral life. One of the things the Catechism says is, uh, and this ties into the, what I'm suggesting in this third criticism of the argument from disagreement, uh, is that uh, morality, although objective and known by all, quote, is not perceived by everyone clearly and immediately. In the present situation, sinful man needs grace and revelation so moral and religious truths may be known by everyone with facility, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error, unquote. And what actually the church is appealing to is something that Thomas Aquinas talks about in the Summa Theologica in a section called the Treatise on Law. He talks about four different types of law, uh, eternal law, natural law, human law, and divine law. And so one of the points that Aquinas makes is that our awareness of what he calls the natural law, these kind of fundamental moral goods, uh, it can sometimes be uh, distorted by our passions, right? And by uh, our certain types of habits uh, so we never can fully rid ourselves of these mo this moral knowledge, but we can distort it in ways. And that's what the, the church is acknowledging. And to a certain extent, my criticism, my third criticism of the argument of disagreement uh, kind of is appealing to that, 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 that if you look behind certain types of disagreements you, in terms of moral, contemporary moral issues, it turns out that people actually may agree on more than, than we think.
fourth, uh, the fourth objection is the argument of disagreement leads to absurd consequences. So if moral relativism is correct, that is that there is no universal objective morality, then it is not wrong everywhere and always to rape another person, intentionally kill the innocent, torture children for fun, judge Mother Teresa as no better than Adolf Hitler, and abandon one's infant offspring to the elements if one finds them inconvenient. So, In other words, what I'm doing here in this fourth objection is kind of appealing to people's fundamental intuitions about what they really believe is right. right? So think about, if you ever, I don't know if you've ever had this happen before, somebody gives you a moral principle or a kind of, or a command, and it's from, let's say, an authority or somebody who thinks that they uh, are an expert, and then you immediately think, that can't be true because I know something else to be true. Right, so I had this, so imagine this, imagine you're at a, um, um, boy, do they still have marriage encounters today? Do you guys know what a marriage encounter is? It's like a place where married couples go to to uh, talk about with other couples about marriage and how they can improve their relationships and and you have to write down your feelings and things like that. Uh, so imagine you're at a marriage encounter. Uh, I went to the last one I went to was with my wife. Was that's the best? If I didn't go with my wife, that would I'd be in trouble. Uh, I went with my wife thirty. I think 30 years ago, and, um, and imagine that you're at a marriage encounter and the speaker says, um, you know, I want to give uh, you uh, lessons on what makes a good marriage, and, um, and one is that a good wife washes her husband's socks by hand. So if my wife was sitting next to me at that point, I'd receive an elbow, uh, like say something, right? And of course, the problem with that, imagine this person claims to be an expert, and you can say, well, wait a second, my wife is good, but she doesn't do that, so the standard must be wrong, <laughs> right? So there's nothing wrong with kind of responding to somebody's criterion or claim by appealing to what you think you already know and you think you may have good reason to know. And so that's what I'm doing here with the fourth objection, that, uh, that the disagreement leads to these absurd consequences. Some other absurd consequences, in addition to these, the examples that I've reeled off, it, it, if, if disagreement, if, if moral disagreement, if the argument for moral disagreement is right, it means that there can be neither moral progress nor moral reformers, right? So we'd like to think that cultures, societies, and individuals can get better. Right? We'd, we'd like to think that we're better for not having chattel slavery anymore and that there have been individuals historically that have been moral reformers, individuals that we admire. Uh, and, but if moral relativism is correct, that's not possible. Right? Because to be a reformer oftentimes means to be somebody within a society or culture who tells everybody else you're getting it wrong you're living inconsistently with what you claim to be true. Right? In fact, that was Martin Luther King Jr., one of his uh, uh, aspects of his genius was his ability uh, in many of his famous uh, 
addresses is was to appeal to what he, what most people in his audience believed to be true. And oftentimes it was within the language of American Protestant Christianity. Uh, his famous letter from a Birmingham jail actually appeals to the early church fathers, uh, Augustine, Aquinas, Socrates. Uh, and so he appeals to, he said, you know, the very traditions that his adversaries thought that they were living consistently with. And so that was part of his genius. And there was, within that kind of critique, is uh, an assumption that we can get better, that we can make moral progress. And so if, in fact, the argument for disagreement uh, were correct, it would mean that there's something like moral progress and having moral reformers would be nearly impossible. So let's move on now to the argument from tolerance. The argument from tolerance. So some people argue that it is intolerant to believe that one's moral views are right and others wrong. Or because it is intolerant to believe that one's moral views are right and others wrong, it follows that moral relativism the view that there is no one universal objective morality best establishes tolerance. So I had this a uh, couple of years ago. I, I published a book uh, with um, Cambridge University Press called Defending Life. And it's a, it's, a, it's a book arguing for the pro-life view on abortion. And it was a book that resulted in a lot of interviews. I mean, it was before podcasting. So I wasn't on a podcast. I was on actual radio stations. And they were mostly college radio stations. And, and oftentimes, there would be somebody in the studio who held to a position that wasn't mine. And so it was, it was pleasant exchanges. It wasn't anything negative. Uh, there was criticism, to be sure. But there were a, a, one, one program I was on, there was a caller who called up. So it was one of these call-in shows. And the guy said, the problem with you Beckwith is that you think, you think you're the only person that's right and everyone else is wrong. And I asked him, I said, do you think I'm wrong in thinking that way? He says, yes. And I said, well, you're just like me. You think you're right and I'm wrong. We're precisely the same position, right? So for, for that caller, he was kind of offering this argument from tolerance, right? Because there's something compelling about it, right? We want to get along with people in a society where there's a diversity of opinions, right? We want to like our neighbor, right? If we think our neighbor is mistaken, we'd like to get along with them, right? If for no other reason, we want them to pick up the mail when we're out of town and we don't want to get on their bad side. So what's wrong with the argument from tolerance? Well, um, I think there's several reasons to reject it. One is, the moral relativist seems to be affirming at least one absolute moral principle, tolerance. But in that case, she is no longer a relativist. So to say that everyone ought to be tolerant is to offer a universal moral claim. Right? And that seems to not at all be relativistic. Right? Because remember, relativism is the view there are no universal moral norms. Second problem, um, moral relativism need not lead to tolerance. 
So I, 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 I'm not going to mention the name of the author. I, I was asked um, uh, about maybe five or six years ago, Cornell University Press uh, asked, uh, this is for those students out there, this is something we professors do once in a while. We're asked by publishers to, to referee books. Uh, and so this was uh, a book that was submitted to Cornell University Press. And it was a, um, it was a kind of, I'm going to think of a right way to put this. It was a defense of, of a kind of, um, I guess there's no other way, kind of, an, it was a defense of nationalism. Uh, and, but the author was a moral relativist. And he was very explicit in the introduction. I don't believe there are any universal moral norms. And so it actually made me think, well, wait a second. So someone could say, I'm a moral relativist. That's why I'm not tolerant. <laughs> because why should I listen to other cultures and other beliefs? I don't like them. <laughs> and I don't want them to move to my country. Right? So relativism, I mean, tolerance, relativism need not be, have anything to do with tolerance at all. But you could easily imagine a case like this author, right, who says, um, I prefer my culture's morality to all others, and thus I want my nation to ban all immigrants from other cultures, including yours. <laughs> right? So there's nothing about, there's, there's no connection necessarily between relativism and tolerance. I mean, I suspect when people do make the argument, they're trying to say something like, you know, we should... We should be more modest when we present our views, right? Or, or at least show a, a, a wit of humility when offering your position to people with whom you disagree. And that, of course, is, is right, but it's not relativism, right? So it actually reveals something else about the argument of tolerance, uh, that the practice of tolerance seems valuable because it establishes certain goods, such as living at peace with others, and better understanding those with whom one disagrees. But these goods seem to be functioning as if, as if they were part of some universal objective morality, which is inconsistent with moral relativism. So if you say, well, why be tolerant? Well, a lot, there's lots of goods from tolerance, right? It could turn out that you're wrong in your view, and you can learn something from someone who disagrees with you. Or that person could be mistaken, and they've learned something from you. But that means that there's something good about acquiring knowledge that leads to human flourishing, which, of course, is not relativist at all. Right? It means that there's some goods to which we are, in a sense, ordered. Right? So tolerance makes sense, it seems to me, that unless there are, it makes sense if there are, only if there are certain types of, of goods. Right? So think about, um, or supposing another thing is that you could find out through tolerance that let's say you, hold a, you have a strong conviction about a particular issue and you do take the time to listen to the other person and you walk away more convinced of your view than you were before. That's another outcome right, of, uh, of that. So the argument from tolerance doesn't seem to make sense if we start thinking about it. So let's move on then to, um, we have a few minutes left. I want to say a few things about uh, insights from Thomas Aquinas when it comes to disagreement. So Thomas Aquinas, uh, most of you know who he, he was, uh, 
a um, 13th century Catholic philosopher and Dominican friar, uh, and he, he's writ he wrote a lot. <laughs> I actually got through the Summa Theologica uh, for the first time from cover to cover. Uh, about a year, it took me about a year and a half. I had a, pl a plan. I mean, I'd read large parts of it before, but never sort of took the time to do it. And I, I, I have to read it again. <laughs> uh, there's just so much there, and I had commentaries and so forth. Uh, but, uh, but Aquinas, so Aquinas in, in several places in the Summa, but specifically in a section which is called the Treatise on Law, um, he talks about something called natural law. And what is the natural law? It involves those goods to which human beings are ordered for which law and political institutions exist. So Aquinas argues that we are rational creatures, that is, we have minds, we're able to reason, we're able to figure out what's good for ourselves. Um, we have natural inclinations to pursue what we believe is good, preserve our lives, beget and educate children, know truths about the world and the divine, and live in a community at peace with our neighbors. The natural law is, in the words of University of Texas philosopher Jay Budziszewski, it's what we can't not know. That is, even when people disagree about certain questions, they seem to always appeal to the same kinds of goods. Right? And so what Aquinas says, it, it, it's that, um, that whenever you find, one of the things, I think one of the most illuminating things about Aquinas' account of the natural law, he explains why people disagree. And he says people can disagree or do bad things for a variety of reasons. They could be habituated badly. Uh, they can do things in fits of passion, right? So I have students uh, who... Uh, have plagiarized. In fact, I had a student whose plagiarism was so bad, not even their sin was original. <laughs> oh. So, uh, so why, do, why do students do that? Do, they know plagiarism is wrong. They do it because they may not like the class, they need time, they'd rather do other things, right? So they're, they're sort of drawn to these other things, right? And it's what Aquinas calls the passions, right? So now societies and cultures can be that way too, right? And so uh, one of the helpful things about uh, Aquinas' account is that he makes rather modest claims about what we can know about the natural law. And he tries to give an account of why people disagree. Uh, the idea of, of natural law is uh, presupposed when we speak of things like human rights and unjust laws. And so uh, think, for example, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which, act, which was kind of masterminded by a French Catholic philosopher named Jacques Maritain, uh, or the, uh, the letter that I mentioned earlier that Martin Luther King Jr. penned when he was in the Birmingham jail. Right? Those kind of documents appeal to the same kind of goods that, he, that someone like Aquinas appeals to or appeal to. So, it, and I think it can account for our deep disagreements. I've already mentioned um, uh, the issue of abortion. 
but think about just the general claim, it is morally wrong to kill another person without justification. Uh, every society in the history of the world has some prohibitions against homicide, right? But there are exceptions, right? Things like self-defense, acts of war, um, and in some cases, uh, especially in issues concerning medical ethics, people will debate about what constitutes the right kinds of attitudes and policies about end of life, right? But yet, those exceptions have to be justified, right? And think, for example, of another. Uh, it is morally wrong to intentionally tell a falsehood to someone who is entitled to the truth, which we call lying. Right? Well, what, what constitutes that? I mean, typically we say, you know, you shouldn't lie, but then we think about sort of maybe cases where maybe an exception, right? Uh, we think of the, the, the heroes during the Second World War in Germany that hid Jewish people in their homes from the Nazis, right? And they lied. They'd say, Do you are hiding anybody here? No, not at all. <laughs> Right? Or we think of even people in the military, right? Some of you may be in the military. You wear camouflage. I mean, aren't you saying I'm really a plant? <laughs> right? I'm really a plant. Don't look here. I'm a plant. Right? I mean, think about deception, disguises. Right? All these are, are part of things like law enforcement and military, yet we think that that's okay, generally. Right? So there's other... Why? Because we think there are other goods at stake, but we appeal to the same goods. Right? We may disagree about things. You know, I, um, you know, I was just having a conversation with a colleague about um, uh, uh, you know, recent uh, federal regulations. Uh, I don't want to, this isn't a lecture on, 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 on administrative law. Five minutes, thank you. Uh, but, but, but we didn't disagree about the federal government's interest in, in what it was doing. We kind of disagreed about, well, well, are these regulations the right way to do it? Right? So, to wrap it up, more relativists uh, typically have their hearts in the right place. They rightly recognize that moral beliefs and practices between individuals and across cultures have great differences, while at the same time wanting to advance the cause of tolerance and understanding. But as we've seen, despite their good motives, the view they hold, moral relativism, has many significant weaknesses. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.